Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Dr. Kiki's Science Hour is provided by Cashfly at C A C H E F L Y dot com. This is Dr. Kiki Science Hour with me, Dr. Kiki Sanford. Episode number 104, recorded Thursday, July 14th, 2011. The final countdown. This episode of Dr. Kiki's Science Hour is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies on your PC, Mac, iPad, iPhone, or TV instantly. All streamed directly to you, saving you time, money, and hassle. For your free 30-day trial, go to netflix.com forward slash twit. And by squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. For a free trial and 10% off your new account for six months, go to squarespace.com and use offer code KIKI7. Welcome to Dr. Kiki's Science Hour. It is episode, what are we, 104 now? Well over the 100 mark. That was a month ago at this point in time. We're well on our way into the next 100. And we're well on our way towards having a new show from the new Twit Studios. I am very excited about this and hoping that I will be able to make it to the studios for our very first episode to be broadcast from the studio at the end of July, July 28th. So I hope everyone will tune in for that show. I believe we are going to have Vincent Racaniello on that day to talk about viruses. Viruses! But today, it's all about the space shuttle. Because as we leave one thing behind to move into a new a new thing, that's what's going on with NASA. We are leaving the shuttle behind. The space shuttle had its Atlantis was the final launch of the United States uh, astronautics program's launch of the space shuttle, the space shuttle program. We are in the midst of the final mission, and I want to know what's going on. What's the next step? Where are we going from here? And I, I'm sure all of you have some questions that are very similar. So I've invited to join us Benjamin Higginbotham and Carrie Ann Higginbotham. They're from SpaceVidCast.com, and they do all sorts of amazing programming online uh, covering shuttle launches from Kennedy Space Center, NASA News, Space News, and we're going to talk with them today. But first, before we dig into that, it's time for the science headlines of the week, so let's get into it. First up, the United States is still dominant in the world of science, as long as girls are doing all the work. My support for this claim are the winners of the first annual Google Science Fair. Shri Bose, Naomi Shah, and Lauren Hodge, all three girls are from the U.S. of A. and beat out 7,500 other competitors for some pretty fantastic prizes. Girls rock in STEM. That's right. Keep rocking it, ladies. The University of California, in cooperation with Massachusetts-based Advanced Cell Technologies, is starting the first trial of an embryonic stem cell treatment for macular degeneration. Two patients have received lab-grown retinal cell implants earlier this week. A NASA atmospheric scientist surmised that Mozart's sickness in life and his resulting death may have been due to seasonal vitamin D deficiency. 
the dude just didn't get enough sun. There's trouble in sexy town. A strain of gonorrhea, otherwise known as the clap, is resistant to antibiotics, making this traditionally easy-to-treat disease much more problematic. Gonorrhea affects around 700,000 people in the United States annually. So watch out. Neptune has completed one lap around the sun. Go Neptune! That's in the 164.8 years since we discovered it on September 23rd, 1846, because its gravitational field had induced a wobble in Uranus's orbit. And 12 new giant undersea volcanoes have been mapped off the South Sandwich Islands in the Atlantic Ocean by the British Antarctic Survey. Some of the volcanoes rise almost two miles from the sea floor, and several have been recently active, suggesting a risk for tsunamis. You gotta watch out for that kind of stuff, but now we know that the risk is there. German geoarchaeologists found evidence that Olympia, the ancient home of the Olympic Games, was destroyed and buried by tsunamis rather than earthquakes, as previously thought. They found remains of marine protozoans, snails, and mollusks at their drilling sites, as well as high-energy sediments of tsunamigenic origin on the sea-facing side of the hills. I really just wanted to say the word tsunamigenic. Never said that before. Researchers at the University of Dayton discovered that fire-bellied newts are able to regenerate their tissues, at least the lens in their eye, that is, well into old age. Now the team is working to discover what allows newts to have this ability so that they can share it with people. I'll be up for that when they get it. And that's the news for this week. This episode of Dr. Kiki Science Hour is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to create a high-quality website or blog. Squarespace.com has an easy-to-use user interface for creating and managing a website or blog that's optimized for both beginners and CSS experts. There are hundreds of design templates to choose from, and you can customize any of the designs to fit your needs. iPhone and iPad apps for updating your blog on the go – online resources and a special support team to give you personal help 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's an all-inclusive service that includes several modules to build your website. There's also uh, website tracking so you know how many times your site is viewed and permission access handling, cloud architecture for speed and site stability. This place is amazing. Use Squarespace for all of your website needs. Build it, host it, and update it anytime for a free trial go to squarespace.com sign up for a free account there's no credit card needed just try it out and start building your website then if you decide to purchase it use the offer code kiki7 that's k-i-k-i-7 and get 10 percent off of your website for six months that's squarespace.com and use the offer code kiki7 now on to our main topic the Space Shuttle. So I'd love to welcome our guests, Benjamin and Carrie Ann Higginbotham, the husband and wife team who run SpaceVidcast.com, the best source for coverage of launches from Kennedy Space Center and news about NASA and other spacefaring organizations on the planet. Both are space enthusiasts who turned their passion into a life. Welcome. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, it's lots of fun, Dr. Kiki. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. Absolutely. Yeah, it's great to see you, and I love the setup you have. Benjamin, your years in video production are put to great use, I just have to say. 
It's all an illusion. If you could see what's going on on either side, it's all about the uh, television illusion. I, I absolutely agree. <laughs> so you're doing you're, you're you're a good illusionist. That's what we'll I, say. I'll say that I've seen the pictures of the new uh, brick house for a twit. That mm-hmm. that looks absolutely amazing. I'm excited to see the first broadcast from there. It's going to be awesome. Oh my gosh, it's going to be amazing. Yes, we're all very excited. Very very excited. But today we're talking about the space shuttle, right? And um, I'd love to find out from you. You, uh, Twit, actually simulcast your coverage of the final space shuttle launch, and I just, I just want to hear your experience of it. What was it like watching well, the launch? I mean, number one, it launched pretty much when they said it was going to launch. That's amazing. Uh, uh, kinda. I mean, they <laughs> they th- they threw a little curveball in there at at the at the end at t minus thirty one seconds. Um, the, there's a. You know pretty much down to the second when the space shuttle should launch. There's a 10-minute window, uh, but then they launch halfway through that window. So they really only have five minutes of available launch window in which to to actually get the vehicle off the ground. If they miss that window, then the space station will be too far away, and it takes too much fuel to try to catch up with them. So what happened was the countdown clock was going, and we were worried about weather all day long. And it was just constant red due to weather, red due to weather, can't go, can't go, can't go, but we're going to keep the countdown clock going. And, well, then- and not just weather at the launch site itself, but at the if there was an issue, mm-hmm. and, and they had to, <clears throat> pardon me, and they had to land, if they're at emergency landing somewhere else, I apologize for my throat here. If they had to land somewhere else, uh, there was red due to weather there as well. Right. The re- mm. If they had to abort. Because they, right. they, they can't just have green weather at Kennedy Space Center. The transatlantic abort sites, in case they have to, you know, get out of orbit. Well, they wouldn't make it to orbit. But in case they have to abort and come back down to Earth, those all have to be acceptable for landing conditions as well. Not all of them. They have to have at least one. Right. Um, and the runway at Kennedy Space Center needs to be available. And so we were, you know, for a while we were green on the launch pad and the, but red at the landing sites. And it was, we were like, oh, when will, this isn't going to go. Uh, and then about L minus one hour, which is uh, uh, T minus 20, basically an hour before uh, launch, they actually gave a green call for weather. They yeah. said at T minus zero, we're going to be green across the board, so we're go. And that was awesome. We, like there was a moment of ecstatic excitement you could see it just kind of jumping through the press side everyone was kind of getting i mean this was really going to happen and then at Mm -hmm. t minus 31 seconds the clock just stopped and when you're at the press site there's no audio like when you're watching from home or when you're watching space vcast coverage or nasa coverage or whoever is covering it you've got the public affairs officer saying you know we're holding due to a problem with uh, such and such and such we can't hear any of that so all we see is that giant iconic clock stop and we have yep. no idea what's going on. And remember, we've only got that five-minute window to work in. At that point, we all assumed, having done this a million times before, we just assumed it's not going today. Yeah. There's no <laughs> way. They're not going to be able to reset. It's not going to happen. It turned out there was an umbilical uh, that they didn't know if it had cleared or not. They, the sensors were giving them weird readings. So they had to swing a camera around to look at it and say, you know what? Yeah, that's cleared enough for us to launch. And they resumed the countdown clock which was in and of itself uh, almost unheard of. I, I think it's happened once before yeah. from the T minus 31 seconds. And yeah, it, was so a, it was a beautiful, that, like that last five minutes of launch mm-hmm. was the most adrenaline I've had coursing through my body in probably <laughs> 10 years. It was amazing. Carrie Ann, was it, the, was it the same for you? 
Um, you know, it was crazy. We uh, we managed to get uh, Ben's parents down uh, to the media site, which was really amazing. Uh, it was the first launch that they had seen, so that was kind of fun. And I want to make sure that they could see it and sort of position them. And like Ben was saying, you know, you can't really hear much of anything when you're on the media site. And our particular tent was well past the iconic clock. So we really, really couldn't see or hear anything. We actually were going off of the rebroadcast, oddly enough, of NASA TV. And there's a second or two delay, so I just thought that maybe all of the internet just shut down for a second, and that's what we were stuck with. I wasn't sure what was going on, and uh, somebody said it stopped, and my mother-in-law says, the shuttle stopped? I said, no, 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 the shuttle didn't stop. So there was a little bit of explaining to go on with that to try and let her know, uh, clue her in as to what was going on, and uh, Ben finally got word then at that point by then that we were still a go, and Everybody sort of ran back, and, and you sort of kind of stick out your spot to see what was going on. And it, it was crazy. It was, it was a lot of fun. But like all shuttles, it was awesome. It was I mean, beautiful. There's, there's nothing like a shuttle launch, uh, especially from that 3.1-mile 3, 3. marker. There's just there's nothing quite like it. I can just imagine. What's the, what is the sound and the, and, and, and the feel like? I mean, what kind of um, physical effects are there from the shuttle launch that you can feel at that distance? It's interesting. Actually, each shuttle launch is a little bit different because of cloud cover. Like STS-134, which is the Endeavour launch previous to this Atlantis launch, um, the clouds were really, really low. They weren't very thick, but they were very low. So as the shuttle went up, you kind of you got this initial sound, but then it sort of reverberated off of the clouds, and you sort of felt it again, which was something we hadn't experienced before. But every time we try to explain the sound, it's it's so difficult and and words really almost can't describe it. I've heard it heard uh, or described as a, a rumbling, a very, very loud sort of rumbling with an odd high crackle at the other end of it. Um, it's I've like the it- sound, once the solid rocket boosters ignite, uh, you can tell. Uh, you don't tell right away because there's that delay. You can see it and then you have to wait for the audio to reach you and at, the, at that, there are different markers that people are allowed at and most people commonly refer to the 12 mile marker when they're like it takes 30 seconds to make it to you right. it really only takes about 10 seconds at the three mile marker a little bit more than that and um it's all it's it's this violent crackling noise you can just tell this vehicle is committed to space there is nothing holding it down at this point <laughs> it it's beautiful and terrorizing at the same time <laughs> yes. i guess is the best way to explain it i like that beautiful and terrorizing uh, there might be many other things in the world that you can describe that way. <laughs> um, so the shuttle launch, it's, it's the last launch. This is what people keep talking about. What do we know that, uh, what's going on for this, mis- mis- this mission? What are, they, what are they doing this time around? What are they getting done knowing that it's going to be hard to get back up there again? Well, I, I wouldn't say it's going to be hard to get back up there again. Uh, certainly, we will be able to send U.S. astronauts back up to the space station. Uh, the space station is an international effort, and we will be hitching a ride with our Russian partners up on a Soyuz capsule mm-hmm. for the immediate future. And then after that, we'll have privatized capsules that we'll be able to go up on. So uh, in addition to that, from a cargo standpoint, which is, you know, you've got to get water and food and supplies up there, we've got a bunch of unmanned vehicles that will go up through other countries as well. Um, so... We will continue to go to the International Space Station, just not on the shuttle. Um, This particular mission is less of a science mission and more of a housekeeping mission. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because the shuttle is uniquely suited to not only bring up a lot of payload at once, but more importantly, bring that payload back down, 
Uh, they're using this as a chance to kind of resupply the space station for a couple of years. In addition, take uh, there was a, a giant uh, ammonia pump that had failed back oh, at the right. end of last year. They need to bring that back down, and they didn't want to just throw that back in the atmosphere. So they're putting that in the shuttle cargo bay and bringing that back with them. That's one of the things that really only the shuttle can do. We will not have another vehicle capable of doing that once the shuttle retires. Um, so this is more of a just ba- basically bringing up lots of cargo, offloading the cargo, and then bringing a bunch of stuff back down to Earth. And souvenirs. There's yep. a lot of souvenirs. Yep, and a lot of press time. <laughs> lots and lots of PAO press time. I've never seen, when you look at the, uh, the, the outline of you know, events for the day, mm-hmm. one of the events says PAO, you know, PAO uh, time, which is a public affairs officer, basically them in front of the camera. I have never seen a shuttle launch with more PAO time slots. It feels like every 10 minutes they're, they're in front of a camera again. It's kind again. of amazing. But yeah, so it's a lot of press and it's a lot of just um, housekeeping, essentially, of the International Space Station. Because you can't really open a door at the space station and just kind of shove it into the backyard. You could, but it would be bad if you did that. It would be very, very bad. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to add to the space junk, you know. Yeah. We don't want to end up like the Chinese having to shoot uh, missiles at our space junk um, <laughs> to get rid of it. Um, for the for the the house cleaning, whether it's it's not this isn't really a research mission. They're just cleaning house. Um is there much more research? Do you know that that's going to be continuing, ongoing? Are we going to? That's the stuff that we're going to need to be getting help from the Russians to get up to the space station for. Sure. So uh, the Russians, the European Space Agency, the Japanese JAXA's uh, uh, Japanese Space Agency, um, a bunch of different space agencies can get up to the International Space Station. And for any continuing experiments that are still on Earth and haven't already been brought up there, mm-hmm. we will need their help to bring those experiments up there. But mm-hmm. the, the whole idea is that we're going to be extending the life of the space station. Originally, we were supposed to deorbit that. Actually, I believe originally it was already supposed to be deorbited. Yes. Um, but <laughs> we're trying to extend the life of the space station because we've got this $100 billion magnificent structure sitting in space. Um, let's use it for a while. And so there will be more science and experiments going on. Uh, quite a bit of cancer research is done on the International Space Station. I have right. th- they'll continue down those roads. Um, and there will be a lot more stuff that we bring up to the International Space Station in the coming years. Uh, but, yeah, like you said right now, this, this is just pretty much a housekeeping mission, just to make sure that we can continue to operate on the space station and have six humans up there at all times. And it's kind of amazing to think about that. Uh, you can download some apps for your iPhone or your Android phone or whatnot, and, and look at it, and it will tell you when the space station's flying overhead, and you, you can see it darting through the sky at night, and think to yourself, at 17,500 miles an hour, there are six human beings, at least six human beings on board that, that little dot in the sky floating by. It's unreal. For the mission and what they're doing, uh, what are the expectations? When are uh, they, they docked with the space station on Sunday? How long is the mission, and when are they going to be coming home? It's a couple weeks. They actually just extended the mission. Let me get a uh, exact status update on the uh, uh, on the home date. Uh, if you want to talk about what they're what they're actually doing. Um, well, one thing I thought was really interesting is uh, they're doing a spacewalk, or they've already done the spacewalk. That go ahead. Well, I was going to say, but the shuttle crew isn't doing it. But the, right, exactly, the shuttle crew isn't doing the spacewalk, which is a little bit unusual and a little bit different. Um, normally, the people who go up on the shuttle are the people who have trained to do the spacewalk and are doing right. the spacewalk, and that's not actually the way it's going. Uh, it's the expedition crew or the crew that's already been on the ISS who are doing the spacewalk. Although the shuttle crew, uh, there's one. 
uh, astronaut in particular, I believe, who was helping out with the spacewalk, but from the ISS side, which I thought was kind of cool. Very interesting to me. Can you tell us a little bit about um, I mean, the, how the training for the spacewalks works? I, I've, see, I've seen some stuff, but for people who might not, not understand why it's the space shuttle crew that usually does the, does the walks, can you explain that? Uh, yeah, normally there's uh, tons and tons of training. Uh, I think it's like five months of training. They're in and out of the neutral buoyancy lab, uh, which is this gigantic pool you've probably seen pictures of uh, that most simulates walking in space, best simulates the zero gravity and whatnot. And uh, it's it's drilling. You know, you just go over and over and over exactly what you're supposed to do. So after a while, it sort of becomes this sort of ballet and uh, almost muscle memory to a certain extent. So you know exactly what you're doing when you get there. Uh, there's no questions about it. They During training, they will throw you a, a couple of curveballs just so you can kind of get used to you know, knowing what it's like and what to do when you get out there uh, and God forbid something should go wrong. Um, although I'm not sure that they ever trained for um, Mike Massimino to sort of break off that. Uh, the handle on Hubble? Yeah, the <laughs> handle on Hubble. But, you know, no. at least then he remained calm through the entire time. He he exhausted all other possibilities and he still got the job done. And, and that's what the training is for. And so uh, because there is so much training that goes into those walks normally, uh, usually it's it's the space shuttle crew that, that does it prior to going up there. So it's fresh in their memories. Uh, it's right there. Uh, but everyone who's on the ISS now, the expedition crew, uh, they pretty much all have done spacewalks, a number of them before. So it's, it's not like they don't know what they're doing. It's just a lot of times it happens to be easier for the shuttle crew to do it. It's, it's hard right. to do a spacewalk. It's counterintuitive when you think about it because on Earth, you, you turn something and you're done. In space, you begin turning something and that motion's not going to, there's nothing pushing against that motion. So it's going to keep going. So if you push off against a wall, you're just going to keep going. And if you push off against the space station, you know, there, it doesn't move like you expect it to here on Earth. And that's where the neutral buoyancy lab comes into play, where they can kind of mostly simulate what it's like in zero gravity. Mm-hmm. Which is really important. You don't want to end up with a screw flying away from the space station, a handle from Hubble, or an astronaut ending up out in space and having to do a rescue. But that exactly. happens. Uh, we actually have had tool bags fly away. Um, yeah. and they're, they, as you mentioned earlier, they become space debris. Yeah. And even something as small as a little bolt, you know, something that small traveling at 17,500 miles an hour in the opposite direction of something traveling 17,500 miles an hour. That's going to create a lot of damage. Yeah, it's funny when you watch the spacewalks, everything feels like it's moving very, very slowly. And when things kind of float away, it looks like they just very nicely, gently float away. But you have to remember that they're gently floating away at 17,500 miles an hour. (laughs) (laughs) It's all relative, right? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, So do we find out when they're they're coming back with the... uh, What's the going on? Like to July twenty yeah. first um, at uh, four fifty two Eastern sta- uh, Daylight Time. There you go. Okay, so so one week from today, then yeah. they'll be coming back. One more week from this. What what kind of stuff they're doing? A space shuttle? They're cleaning stuff up. Uh, no, it's not a space shuttle. A space walk. Excuse me. They're cleaning stuff up, um, and then they head home. Where are they landing? Uh, is it? Um, well, if everything. <laughs> <laughs> You gotta hope. Um, yeah, fingers crossed. Uh, 
Yeah, exactly. exactly. Kennedy Space Center is where they always want to land because if mm -hmm. they can land at Kennedy Space Center, they don't have to attach the orbiter to something called the shuttle carrier aircraft and then fly it cross country, which is very expensive to do. Right. Uh, so if they can land at Kennedy Space Center, they will. The thing with Atlantis is Atlantis never got an, a particular upgrade that the other two orbiters did get, which allows them to transfer power to and from the space station mm -hmm. so they can stay attached to the space station a little bit longer, which means the number of days in space that Atlantis can stay um, isn't that much more than the day that they need to deorbit. So um, they have a little bit of fudge room when it comes to days. So they'll try to land at Kennedy Space Center, but if they can't within, we'll say, 24 to 48 hours, um, uh, what is it, Edwards Air Force Base, I believe, is the uh, backup site. In California. In California. Sweet. Maybe I'm going <laughs> to have to be there next week. <laughs> there you go. Well, well the see. other fun thing is that uh, if Atlantis gets her chance to land at Kennedy Space Center, that is her final resting place. Uh, yeah. Eventually, once they decommission her and whatnot, uh, that's where she's going to be stationed, uh, is at Kennedy Space Center, put on display in, in a lovely, uh, this really cool display where you can kind of, you can't exactly walk up to it, uh, but, uh, you know, sort of see the inside. They're going to have the payload bay doors open and all that kind of fun stuff. So that's where she's going to be. So I, I think it would be nice and sort of poetic, as much as I'm sure you'd like to see her, and I, I hope that for you, but <laughs> that's where she's supposed to be going, so I think it would be nice for her to land there. More fun is to hear the twin sonic booms, booms as she comes back in. Yeah. You get this boom, boom, off the, uh, uh, as she um, uh, decelerates slower than the speed of sound. How fast, how, how fast is she going when, when, when she enters? Do you, do you know well, she enters how many Gs? Well, G-forces G is going to be very low. It's going to be half a G or so half when they fire the Ohm's thrusters. Uh, what they're going to do is they're going to slow the orbiter down by about 200 miles an hour, bringing it down to somewhere around 17,300 or so. Um, and what will happen... Yeah, I know. That's all. Right? <laughs> That's all. Okay. Just enough. Right? Yeah, I know. <laughs> what gear is that? Uh, so they'll slow the orbiter down by firing the engines. And the act of slow... Because the, the way this works with, is the orbiter is essentially constantly falling over space. It's just falling over itself. And it's just going fast enough where it never actually falls back down into Earth. So by slowing it down a, a little bit, it starts to fall back in, and you get more atmospheric drag, and it gets slower and slower and slower. It's kind of amazing if you ever – there are forms online that show you, you know, uh, how fast it was going at certain points in time. And if you listen, you'll hear them calling, you know – Mach 25, however many thousand feet. Mach 24, however many thousand feet. Right. Um, they go faster than sound for most of the ride back uh, to their landing site. It's only within the last few minutes that they go slower than sound. And then they land at 200 and some odd miles an hour, 225, 250 miles an hour, which is uh, steeper and faster than a traditional uh, uh, airline. But they have... Yeah. No engines, so if they miss, they can't miss. They, there is no if they miss. They cannot miss. They have one chance and one chance only to hit that runway. She's a brick with wings. Mm -hmm. That sounds so aerodynamic. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, a flight I'd love to take. No, <laughs> right. I don't know about oh, that. I, I think I, a lot of people would love to take. You know, even, even though it is a brick with wings, and even, there's all that that goes with it, um, yeah. it would still be fun to fly in the space shuttle. Yeah. Yeah, that or maybe I'll just take the vomit comet. I don't know. Yeah, a little parabolic flight. Mm -hmm. You can do that. It's about five thousand dollars. Space adventure. Uh, yeah. is, is space adventure still? Yeah, zero G corp. Yeah, zero G corp, and for it's around five, four or five grand. You can actually fly a parabolic flight 
and they'll they'll simulate a bunch of different places like the moon, Mars, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Okay, so I need to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. And when we come back, I'm going to ask many more questions about the space shuttle and the future of space flight with NASA and internationally. Let's see where space flight and space ex- exploration is going. Talking with Benjamin and Carrie Ann Higginbotham from spacevidcast.com. This episode of Dr. Kiki's Science Hour is brought to you by Netflix. Netflix streams thousands of TV episodes and movies directly to you instantly, which means you save time, money, and hassle. There are several easy ways to instantly access streaming movies and TV shows with Netflix. First, you can watch Netflix movies and those shows uh, on your Mac, PC, iPad. There's an iPad app you can watch on your phone. There are even some Android apps for the uh, for Android phones too. If you have gaming consoles, you can use uh, an Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii. You can watch it right on your television. If you're not a gamer, you can watch Netflix on your TV with an app, Apple TV or a Roku box. And with Netflix, you can watch movies and TV shows instantly using any of these devices. And you can begin watching a movie or show on one device and then finish on a different one. Whichever way you choose to access Netflix, you can watch as many movies and TV shows as you want, any time you want. And you can cancel at any time. So try Netflix today, free for 30 days. That's 30 days for free, a whole month, no paying for anything. Go to netflix.com forward slash twit. Be, be sure that you use this URL when you sign up for their free 30-day offer. That's netflix, netflix.com forward slash twit. And we do thank Netflix for their support of twit, and we hope that you enjoy watching instantly with Netflix. Now back to the show. Benjamin and Carrie Ann are are wonderfully spending some time with me to talk about the space shuttle. The final launch of space shuttle Atlantis, the final shuttle in the shuttle program was this last Friday, went off basically without a hitch. It, they're coming back. The, the mission is coming back a week from today. We hope that everything goes safely and smoothly. Um, but let's talk about what happens after. What happens when the, the space shuttle lands the shuttles are all being given to museums, being put in uh, in uh, basically this museum state, so yep. you can go look at them. They're not going to fly anymore. What's next? So, well, for, first you're going to want to visit a shuttle uh, because yeah. they're they're doing some pretty <laughs> cool things with these. There are um, four remaining orbiters, one of which never flew into space, mm-hmm. uh, but was the test article and actually was designed to fly into space, but it ended up being cheaper not to use it. And that's the Space Shuttle Enterprise. Uh, that's currently in the Smithsonian, and that's being moved to New, New York. York. Uh, then we're taking Space Shuttle Discovery, and Discovery mm-hmm. is going to the Smithsonian. Yep. Mm-hmm. We've got Space Shuttle uh, Endeavor, and Endeavor is going to California. Yep. And then we've got Space Shuttle Atlantis, and that's actually the only space shuttle NASA is keeping. And that will be at the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex. And uh, so I'll go down and visit, because Space Shuttle Atlantis is my personal favorite orbiter, so I'm going to constantly go down and, and visit. Uh, so that, you know, that, that's the future of the Pet space it, shuttle. Feed it, feed it. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yes, next. Oh, you're so awesome. Yeah, there you go. So, and that's so. Speaking of, so Enterprise has the orbital vehicle designation of 101 because it was supposed to become an active space shuttle, um, but they took uh, Columbia, which was a uh, supposed to be a. So, uh, frame test article mm-hmm. and it had the uh, orbital vehicle designation of 99 and they said you know it will actually be cheaper to turn this into a, a flight ready vehicle than it will be to retrofit enterprise and they just never changed any of the n- names or numbers so that's for anyone who's ever wondering like why is why does it go ov 99 and then ov uh, uh 102 three so forth and so on that that's why that happened the future of the space shuttle program well the future of the uh space program is kind of awesome, actually. It, a lot of people are, are sad that the space shuttle is going away. And, and the space shuttle was an amazing, majestic, beautiful vehicle that locked us to low Earth orbit for 30 years and was extremely unsafe. It was a 1 in 80 chance of loss of crew and vehicle every time we launched it. And I, I love the vehicle. I think it's beautiful. And we're, we're just not going to have a vehicle that amazing to watch launch again. We're going to go back to traditional rockets. But rather than NASA building one rocket and having a single program, the Apollo program, the space shuttle program, Mm -hmm. you know, anytime there's a problem within these programs, we had to shut the program down for several years. We couldn't fly to space until we could fix the problem and then continue. Instead of doing that, NASA's working on building an entire space industry, and they're doing this through privatized space companies, through companies like SpaceX, Blue Origin, um, uh, the rest of them just uh, orbital sciences. <laughs> uh, Lockheed Where did Martin. They go? Yeah, I was like SpaceX. That's a uh, uh, Lockheed Martin, <laughs> Boeing, so forth and so on. And rather than having one vehicle to launch on, they'll have a slew of vehicles that they can pick. So there are uh, five different ro- rockets being worked on. There are five different capsule or uh, shuttle designs being worked on, and you can kind of mix and match some of them if you want to. Not all of them, but some of them. So they've got a bunch of choices now, which means that once we start going back into space, if something happens to one of these vehicles, that's okay. We'll just pick a different vehicle, and the U.S. will continue being able to go into space. We don't have to shut the entire program down for years on end. In addition, because it's privatized space, it's substantially less expensive than the government doing this. Uh, if you look at this, I, I can stop I and mean, interrupt me at any time. I'll just keep going for hours. Yeah, no, do you know how much I, I, I read something recently that said that uh, this particular shuttle launch cost close to $200 billion? No, it should be close total. to $450 million. Uh, $200 billion is. Wait, what was the number? Make sure. Yeah, at least $200 billion, That There's some, a, a financial guy or a numbers guy from the Wall Street Journal um, has, has started with some cost. And I think taking all factors into account that the total cost of this particular mission was uh, $193 billion. That doesn't seem right. And here's why. NASA's yearly budget is $20 billion. So yeah. this mission being 10 times their annual budget. Really going to put them in the hole and get a lot of Republicans <laughs> very mad. Exactly. <laughs> Generally speaking, shuttle launches cost around half a billion dollars to launch per, per shuttle. Uh, originally, they thought it was going to cost around $7 million to launch each shuttle. So mm-hmm. we've gone from $7 million to $450 million, and that's what it really ends up costing to launch uh, each shuttle flight. So uh, they are expensive. They're very, very expensive to run, but I, 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 there's, I, I, I can't buy the. Maybe there's another way, like 
all of the flights of Atlantis combined were maybe two hundred billion, but I, I can't understand how one flight would be that expensive. Yeah, I, unfortunately, the the article was behind a paywall, so I haven't been able to access it myself yet. But um, yeah, I, I'm interested to see what what they did to put the numbers together there. Um, but it, you know, it's interesting. It, it's it is expensive. It's not mm-hmm. a, a cheap thing to throw a shuttle into into orbit, low Earth orbit, and. Um, you know, do you think the decision for the, you know shutting down the shuttle program, moving into relying on others for a while until we can maybe come up with our own program, or even not even worrying about it, is it just not having a shuttle replacement? Uh, just was that an oversight, or do you think it was budgetary that NASA's got budget problems and uh, the shuttle program's expensive? Well, as, a, as an idealist, I'd love to give NASA a lot more money, right? Just keep, throw, keep throwing money at the science, technology, engineering, math segments of, of the U.S. and, you know, take it from other places like military or whatever and just keep throwing it into the science area. Well, and there's numbers that have been thrown around lately uh, saying that uh, NASA's annual budget is as much as we spent on air conditioning for uh, military troops overseas. Right. So and so I, when you start looking at it that way, or, or other people have said, uh, you know, it's one half of one percent. So it's one half of one penny in your pocket that's really going towards NASA. So, you know, to kind of give some perspective, yes, it's very, very expensive, but the amount of money that we're spending on it as as a whole country doesn't feel to be as much, if that makes any sense. But, mm-hmm. but I don't think budget's the whole story. Um, the Bush administration actually is the one that canceled the space shuttle program back in 2004. And it was actually, I think, the right call to do. Yeah. The, the shuttle is, let's remember, the shuttle was designed in the 70s and built in the early 80s. It's a 30-year-old vehicle. Uh, yeah. it, it was not designed to last this long. It was designed to fly 100, 100 flights over the course of 10 years, not 30 years. And so it really is time to retire the space shuttle. Yeah. Uh, at the time, the Bush administration then outlined plans for us to go back to the moon, onto Mars and beyond. And that was under a new program called Constellation. Uh, the problem with Constellation was it was very, very over budget. Uh, the designs weren't very good, in my humble opinion, uh, and it wasn't going to be sustainable. So even if we built the rockets, we couldn't afford to fly them. So why are we building these rockets in the first place? It's just going to be Apollo all over again. It's going to be flags and footprints. We don't want flags and footprints. We want to go. We want to explore. We want to seed the galaxy. We want to get out there. And so that wasn't very obtainable. So the Obama administration came in and said, okay, we're canceling the Constellation program. And that's kind of where this gap came into play a little bit uh, in that because originally designed, it was supposed to be space shuttle and immediately thereafter Constellation. Constellation. There would be no gap. Right, right. But Constellation was so far behind that that was not going to happen no matter what. And this gap won't be very long. Realistically, we're looking at maybe a five-year gap. There was a gap between Apollo uh, and the space shuttle program as well. Hopefully, that gap will be even smaller. SpaceX is saying they'll be able to fly humans by 2013, I believe it is. I think that's And, you know, that's only two years away. Now, whether they can actually fly humans in 2013 or not, you know, we'll see. But... They're doing stuff. I mean, they're actually building rockets. They have sent a capsule around, orbited the Earth, brought it back down, and safely recovered it. They're making this happen. They've got their f- third flight that they're going to do later this year that uh, proves that they can actually send cargo up to the International Space Station. And this is all private space, and you know they're, they're just making it happen. So I, I don't think the gap will be as big of a deal as a lot of people are making it out to be. But it, you know, it does kind of. It does kind of suck a little bit that we've got it. It would be really nice if we had something right now that we could point to and say, and we're moving to that. Right. But yeah. we don't. 
Right, we don't. And at the same time, uh, China is pushing forward with its space program, saying that it's going to be uh, that it's going to be putting the first uh, part of its space shuttle into orbit later this year. That's space the station. idea. That's the yeah, the space station into orbit later this year. Um, they're moving forward on on plans for that. They want to be on the moon in 2014, I think. Um, we're looking at another space race it seems and here we are kind of going oh stumbling and stuttering and maybe finding ourselves behind maybe maybe not so i think we're going through growing pains right now uh think of the space shuttle as the end of the beginning we we ended that program but now it's time for us to grow up a little bit more and to rather than just having a government agency working on a single program allow an entire industry to be born from this that competes and uh, works together and against each other a little bit to drive costs down, to innovate and to do unique things that the government wouldn't normally think of. Uh, I kind of liken it to the days of DARPAnet. When, when you go back and you look at how the internet was formed, it was a government entity at the beginning. It was right. DARPAnet. But it wasn't until private industry really grabbed onto it and turned it into the internet that we know today that it blossomed into this integral thing that, I mean, I, I have no idea how I lived before it. So <laughs> right. I, I think the same thing is going to end up happening in space. I, I really hope it will, actually. Uh, I'm cautiously optimistic that this is what we're going through right now, is we're going through the DARPANET to Internet transition. Much like DARPANET to Internet, that didn't happen overnight. There was a lot of stuff that had to happen in between. We're in that sticky, messy in-between phase right now. But it's a necessary, it's a necessary phase. When you look beyond that, the outlook is actually very, very bright. We're mm-hmm. going to put ourselves in the forefront of this new industry. We're going to essentially give birth to the space industry and say, this is how you do it. And it's going to be really, really quite cool. SpaceX has vehicles. When you look at the Dragon capsule, it's capable of, on paper at least, going to the moon and, uh, and re-entering Earth's atmosphere. It's got enough heat shielding to do a, what is it, a 22,000 mile per hour re-entry back into Earth. Mm-hmm. Well, they didn't wow. have to design the heat shield like that for low Earth orbit, right? I mean, they only needed to design it for 17,500, but they designed it in such a way that it could go to the moon. Now, they've not announced that they're going to the moon. They've not announced that they're actually going to Mars. But when you look at what they're doing, you can see that they're stacking things in such a way that they're thinking well beyond just low Earth orbit. And uh, it's, it's a really exciting time. It's a tipping point for us. We can choose to go back to the old way of the government doing everything, or we can choose to try to do something new and innovative and move beyond low Earth orbit, go to the moon, go to Mars, but not do it the way we had tried to do it before, which, by the way, historically, never really worked. Right. When you look at We're Apollo, done. you know, we, yeah. had to, we had to kill it. Yeah, that, that wasn't repeatable. It wasn't sustainable. It had, it, it had, it had to go. And... Do you think looking at it through uh, the eye of uh, the private industry, this this privatization push, that it has the potential to really become sustainable and that there will be an industry <clears throat> that is going to be birthed out of this, that we will see that we will see these vehicles going to low Earth orbit, the moon, Mars, beyond. And and how long do you think that's going to take? Well, we will see the vehicles going to low Earth orbit. That's all but set. Um, We'll see two types. We'll see one going to suborbital flight. That's going to be space tourism through companies like Virgin Galactic, X-Core, Mastin, Armadillo, companies like that. Then there's the low Earth orbit, which which is higher up, and that's like at the space station. SpaceX will fly Falcon 9 Flight 3, which is the third 
test of their vehicle. That's going to bring cargo up later this year, and they will actually bring it to the space station. So that's happening now. I mean, they're they're building it. It's at Kennedy Space Center being prepped for launch. It's happening. Uh, That's not going away. The question becomes sending humans up to low Earth orbit. Um, They have one contract for that, and they have designed these vehicles from the beginning to send humans up there. Mm -hmm. So I'm cautiously optimistic that, yes, it will happen. Beyond low Earth orbit, I really don't know. It's exceptionally expensive and hard to do to get to the moon and to get to Mars. I'm hopeful that it will happen. It could be. I mean, it could play out in many different ways. It could be that this is the best thing we've ever done. Private industry will revolutionize how we do things. They will uh, find a new way of uh, propelling the vehicles. They will innovate, innovate, innovate. And uh, all of us will be in space in the next 20 years. It could be that way. It could also be that it's so difficult to do and so expensive, and there's just no profit there, that private space will just collapse on itself, and really only governments can do it. And so right. we'll go back to the days of Apollo. I really don't know what's going to happen. I, I mean, you can look at low Earth orbit, and you can look at the geo orbit where you're sending satellites uh, up into space, and you can look at that, and you can say there's a business model there. Uh, looking at the moon and onto Mars, you have to be a little bit more creative with the business model. But I believe there's one there. I do believe there's one there. I just don't think we found it yet. Right. And the and the technology to get there is probably um, that that underpins the whole business model. And so yeah. we have to come up with that technology to be able to get there. Um, in terms of uh, humans getting places, um, do you think that that what's happening and keeping the the, the public's interest like NASA has done so well with, you know, the shuttle launches, the astronaut program. Um, do you think it hinges on humans going into outer space? Um, there's a lot of talk about robots and robotic missions. I mean, that's where NASA is going to be going. More robots to Mars. Yeah, actually, they've got some really awesome robotic missions coming up. There's Juno launching in about a month, which is Juno. a mission to Jupiter. And they're going to be looking. I, I mean, it, uh, I hope that's not like a pregnant robot. <laughs> a, teen, a, a pregnant teen robot. No, no it's not. No, <laughs> send it's not. it to Actually, Mars. <laughs> it's a weird looking satellite because it, you, you usually think of the satellites with that kind of gold foil type thing, mm-hmm. uh, but this one is. It looks like it's wrapped in duct tape. It's and that's how it will actually launch. It looks like it's in this like. Duct <laughs> so it is. Tape. I suppose it is a little hipster in, in that kind of way. It's <laughs> right. A little anti-establishment in, in that manner. But uh, most of the readings that we've ever gotten from Jupiter are sort of from the outside or just the very very thin layers on the very very top. And this is actually sending probes in down as far as we can go, or at least as far as we think we can go, to try and get more information out of Jupiter. Um, mm-hmm. Sort of the the big elephant that no, no one wants to talk about, I suppose. Um, just to get a lot more information out of, out of Jupiter and figure out what's going on, uh, not just in Jupiter, but in our entire solar system. And look at the seas of liquid metallic hydrogen, which is just fun to say and think about. Yes. Liquid I metallic hydrogen. I, I want to see pictures. I, oh, I yeah. can't wait. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be cool. So that's that's Jupiter, right? And that's coming up real soon here. Like in uh, August. And then you had mentioned uh, Mars. That's another. We have this fascination. We as humans have a fascination with Mars because it's it's like that next really achievable thing. We're sending uh, Curiosity, the uh, Mars exploration rover, but Curiosity we're sending down there. That's going to be a nail biter all the way down because mm. it's the largest rover we've ever sent to Mars. And you may it's re- like the size of an SUV. And in order to get something that large down, they have to, they've developed this insane uh, entry-descent landing procedure where they sky crane the vehicle down. 
Uh, and then they have to like fly, like detach and fly away from this crane system. I, I would say hit YouTube for a curiosity and then type EDL for entry, descent, landing. And I think you'll see everything they have to do to get it into the planet. And if anyone can do it, it's going to be the NASA engineers. Yeah, uh, it, but, it's either man. the craziest thing that's ever happened and it'll be amazing or it'll be the worst disaster ever. That line is thin, right? It's, it's, it's very, very, very thin, thin line. Very thin, but it's very cool. Uh, that's going to be very exciting. So there is a lot of fun and exciting missions with robotics. However, there's something about sending humans into space. When you watch a space shuttle launch, there are always substantially more people, either in person or even watching online, always at least 10 times more people watching. And when you watch a Soyuz launch, there are less people than a a shuttle launch, but there are still way more people that watch a Soyuz launch than watch the launch of a Delta IV with a satellite on it. People just don't watch that. They're not as interested in it. They may be interested in the imagery after the fact. I think Hubble's a great yeah. example of that. But the actual initial mission information, as they're kind of ramping up and getting out there and kind of doing their thing, generally speaking, with the exception of a, a select few, some, some of the geeks out there, which I say with, you know, geeks are awesome. Because yeah, we watch them. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Um, with the exception of those, people don't care as much. They don't really seem to care until you put a human on board. Right. Right. Until, until it's some person going and doing something. And there's that, the human connection, the human yeah. spirit. The, Absolutely. Yeah. Manifest destiny. Where are we going? Or as my, I was going to say, as my, my co-host on uh, This Week in Science calls it the Marsifest destiny. Nice. Humans to Mars. <laughs> well, you know, it does, it does make sense to send humans in, in a certain way. When you look at, uh, you remember the two rovers we've sent out there, uh, Spirit and uh, Opportunity. Curiosity? Opportunity. 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 Yeah. Um, the little rovers that could. The yes. little rovers that could. The 90-day mission turned into five years. Yeah. And the science that they gathered in that five years is estimated if we had sent a single human, a single human could have done that same science in about a day. So, yeah, rovers are awesome. Rovers, you know, there's certainly not the risk of loss of life, but you can do so much more when you can make immediate decisions that the robots just can't make. And yep. it's really difficult to make those decisions here from Earth when every, every command you send takes, at a minimum, yeah. seven minutes to execute because you have to wait for the speed of light. And it all depends on where Mars is in relation to Earth. It can be further or closer. It could even yeah. take longer. Uh, depending upon, you know, a bunch of different variables. So, you know, it, it does make sense to send humans out there. But it that but it only def- if we can do it safely. Safely, but not at the expense of all of our robotic missions, too. Right. Those are equally as important. And I, yeah. I think we should put more emphasis on some of the robotics. And, and, yeah, it's awesome sending humans up there, but I think humans need to be going out there for a purpose above and beyond, hey, we're going to the space station. It needs to be... Hey, we're setting up new colonies. You know, right. we're really exploring the new frontier, um, and there needs to be a good reason to be going out and doing it. Right. Send people if there's the, a real reason for it. Odd jobs can be done by robots. Exactly. Uh, we're, yeah, we're coming up to the end of the hour here, and I just wanted to find out. You know, the shuttle launches are 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 over from the Kennedy Space Center, but there are still more launches of other rockets and things to to come from the Space Center. Um, what's what's next on the docket for Space Vidcast? What are you guys going to be covering? Um, you know, 
what are you interested in coming up here in the near future that we should get excited about? Uh, we kind of mentioned some of them. Uh, curio- mm-hmm. uh, curiosity. Now I'm messing up my Mars rover names. Yeah, curiosity. curiosity. Man, is <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that one's going to be, like I said, a nail biter, and that's going to be a lot of fun. I'm excited for Juno. Uh, I think that's going to be I, I, an incredibly important mission to Jupiter, and it's going to be a lot of fun. The, the the people doing Juno are just great people, and they really love their work. And it, you can tell in the vehicle that they built, and it's going to send back some amazing science uh, from the large gas giant. Um, those are the two immediate missions that we're looking at. Beyond that. Uh, privatized space, SpaceX Falcon 9 launches. Those are those are really fun to watch because they look a little bit different than e- every other rocket because yeah. they view it differently. Falcon Heavy launch, uh, launches, oh, yeah. Orbital Sciences launches, and there are space shuttles being built by private companies, by the way. So it's not like the shuttle's going away. They're building a smaller version of the space shuttle that will be covering stuff like that as well, which will be fun to uh, watch. There is a lot going on in space. The space the space industry is so much more than just the space shuttle program. It kind of sucks that it's going away a little bit, but you know it's only a very small percentage of, of the whole overall industry itself. Well, even stuff like Google Lunar X Prize, mm-hmm. stuff like that is just really fascinating. You know, however many I think it's like twenty different teams across the entire world, people from I think they've hit every single continent so far and, you know, multiple languages, people who are trying to get little robots up to the moon uh, and get pictures of the Apollo stuff that's still up there and whatnot. Fascinating, fascinating, interesting stuff. New beginnings. New beginnings. It sounds really exciting. And I'm glad you guys are going to be on the forefront allowing us to watch with you as it all unfolds and um, I'm certainly going to be tuning into your broadcasts as much as I can to be able to catch it thank you so much for joining me today this has been great it's our pleasure it's a lot of fun Dr. Kiki thank you for having us thank you and anybody out there who's interested in uh, more space frontier stuff be sure to check out space Vidcast.com. That's where Benjamin and Carrie Ann broadcast. Um, and they put out some really great stuff, like I said. So, um, yeah, right now, not broadcasting, obviously, because they're here with me. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> they have some great stuff out there. Visit spacevidcast.com for more information. That does it. I'm Dr. Kiki, and this has been the Science Hour. Next week, we're probably going to be talking about the Atlantis landing, at least a little bit part of it. Hopefully things will be going without any trouble or trauma and we will find the astronauts home in one week. Until then, you can find me on the internet. So, you know, if you're interested in catching other episodes of the show, if this is the first time that you've caught it, you can f- visit twit.com. TV forward slash Kiki, K-I-K-I, for past episodes. You can watch a whole bunch of things. Got 104 episodes that you can, or somewhere close to that, that you can search through. Uh, You can also find me on Twitter. I'm Dr. Kiki, Dr. Kiki on Facebook, and now on Google+. I'm Dr. Kiki Sanford. You can find me there if you're on the Google+, as well. For more sciencey goodness, you can always find me at twist.org, This Week in Science, which also broadcasts live on the twit network at 7 30 p.m pacific time or somewhere around there uh on thursday evenings and i will see you next week thank you very much for tuning into my science hour remember all i ask is just one hour a week and remember one hour a week makes your world a whole lot more interesting and now it's time for some birds